0: if you would, to Mark chapter 8. Hopefully we'll make it through the chapter today. I thought we were going to last week, but that didn't happen. Uh, we had a new edition this week. This is uh, Hazel Jane. That's my daughter. Hazel was born at 4 a.m. on uh, Friday morning, so one week late. Um, as my Oldest son said, uh, it's not surprising that my daughter was late. <laughs> For some reason. We are. Well, the funniest part of it, though, was we were watching, we have been watching the uh, Hazel's brother all the last four days. And my son-in-law is a rabid, rabid Aggie fan. He was in the corps and all of that stuff, and uh, so somewhere I have a picture of the son at at uh, my other son's house wearing a the grandson wearing a Texas Longhorn uh, sweatshirt, which we posted it for the family and got all kinds of good and bad comments. Mark chapter 8, as we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, is the middle of the, of the book. We're halfway through, and there's actually a transition. We have transitioned from the introduction of Jesus and the miracles and the teaching that demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember, verse 1 of the book, the book exists to show that Jesus is the Son of God. So in the Middle of chapter 8, he begins this discussion and he starts telling his disciples what's going to happen. And from here on, it's a journey toward the crucifixion. And we started that last week when uh, Jesus asked his disciples, so who do people say that I am? And they gave the same answers that we had a couple of weeks ago when Herod was discussing who Jesus was. And then Peter says, "You are the Christ. You are the Messiah." And Jesus says, "Don't tell anybody yet." And then Jesus starts to tell him, "Tell them the things that are going to happen." Remember uh, verse thirty-one. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man—that's Jesus—must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And Peter and the other disciples look at Jesus and go, no, that's not what we signed up for. The Messiah is supposed to wipe the Romans out of the country, take over, reestablish the Davidic kingdom, and we're supposed to rule the world, and you're going to be on the throne, and we're going to be your top leaders. What is this about dying? And remember, Jesus turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan, because what you are proposing is counter to the will of God. So, verse 34, we barely got started in this, so we're going to pick it up again in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We made it through one of those three, I believe, last week. The very first one about denying himself. We had a discussion that we often think of denying ourselves as, well, I'm not going to have... A second piece of pie. I'm not going to have a fifth piece of pie. Okay, I'm going to deny myself. And we oftentimes talk about denying ourselves with connection, well, with fasting, for example, where you choose one day of the week or an extended period of time where you refrain from food. Why do you do that? Well, we do that to teach our bodies that the body is not in control of us. That the spiritual realm is more important than the physical realm. But what we're talking about here is more than just denying ourselves things, denying ourselves experience. This is denying the self. Denying the self as the center of your universe. And we had a discussion about this last week. Because in our society today, me, myself, my whoever I am, is in charge of me and my life. I am, in fact, my own personal idol. I am my own center of my own universe. And Jesus is telling his disciples, if you want to be my disciple, you have to say no to that. It's more than just denying yourself things. It is denying that yourself is the center of the universe. Now, I intentionally didn't say something last week. However far we were going to get in the lesson last week... I wasn't going to say something, but I'm going to tell it to you today, because I wanted you to ponder it and think about it during the week. We as teachers have a tendency to want you to leave this place happy and content. Okay? I want you to understand the love and grace of God, and so we have a tendency to End every lesson with, well, I know denying yourself is hard, but don't worry about it because the grace of God takes care of all of it. And I didn't do that last week because I didn't want you to leave fat and happy. I just left fat. (laughs) I told you last week that I pondered for weeks these three simple statements deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. We know that God is a gracious God. There is no way any of us could obtain salvation in any form or fashion through our own works. But oftentimes we use that to produce a certain complacency that makes us think, well, it says to deny ourselves, but... We don't really have to do that, so yes, I'll take the second piece of pie. I know it says to take up our cross, but you know what? It's all grace, so we do not want to be complacent. There has been a great theological debate about 20 years ago, it was a hot topic, and there were books being written about can you become a believer and not be a disciple? Is that possible? And I guess, in theory, it probably is possible. You are saved by grace through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But if you then look God in the eye and say, no, I'm not going to do anything that you ask me to do, it should be a warning flag that maybe you're not what you think you really are, that being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, as an aside, step number one, deny the self. Step number two, take up your cross. Notice it doesn't say take up Jesus's cross. Jesus will handle that just fine. It says take up your cross. What in the world does that mean? In fact, if you're one of the disciples at this point in time, I suspect it's meaningless to you. I suspect they don't understand. They knew what a cross was. And it wasn't a beautiful piece of jewelry. It wasn't some wonderful symbol of salvation and redemption. It wasn't any of that. It's like, take up your electric chair and follow me. The cross was an instrument of death. And we in our modern society worry about criminal punishments that are cruel and unusual. The cross was made to be cruel and unusual. It was made to inflict pain and cause a miserable death. Compared to the cross, the guillotine is a painless way of dying. Whack, and it's over. The cross, you would hang there for days, dying. It was an instrument used by the oppressor nation of Rome to keep the underlings in line. And Jesus looks at them and says, take up your cross. What does that mean to them? What does it mean to us to take up our cross? Remember, it's not take up Jesus' cross. There is only one Jesus. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and my sins. And that's done and taken care of. But when Jesus did that... He was fulfilling the will of God the Father for his God the Son's life. Remember, he said, I am here to do the will of the one who sent me, that is the Father. I was born to do something, and that was the will of the Father. And I, even though I know what's coming, even though I don't like the idea that it's coming, I mean, he did ask to get out of it, but he said, no, whatever. If it's your will, I'm going to do it. When we take up our cross, we take up that which God has given us to do, and we follow that path, regardless of the cost of that path. Now, Jesus is talking to his disciples here. We know from the book of Acts and later church history, uh, we know that Judas is going to kill himself. Okay, That leaves 11. Of those 11, according to church history... All of them died for the faith, with one exception, maybe. Who's the exception? John. According to church tradition, they tried to kill John, and it didn't work. So what do you do with the guy that you can't kill? You stick him on a rock out in the middle on the island of Patmos, and he sits there and he writes the book of Revelation. God wasn't through with him. So all of these people were going to die for their faith. They did, in fact, take up their cross. So what does it mean for us today to take our cross? Well, having denied myself, removed myself as the center of my own life removed my desires from being in charge of everything that I do, the next step is to accept the fact that God has prescribed a path for me. He has given me a task. Now, you're sitting there going, okay, tell me what that is. Well, there's two pieces of this, and I want to make sure we understand it. I do believe that God has put you in a particular place at a particular time, surrounded by particular people to do a particular job. But I also know that God has given all of us instructions on how we are to live our lives. And sometimes we lose sight of the everything that God has told us because we're somewhat confused about the particulars. God tells us to love our enemies, but I don't want to love my enemy. Tell me what you have in plan for me. Well, if you're not going to love your enemies, he's not going to tell you what he has in plan for you because you're not doing the will of God. So we deny ourselves, we take up our cross which means that we are willing to do what God would prescribe for us to do, regardless of the cost, and then we follow Jesus. Now, what does it mean to follow somebody? This is pretty simple stuff, right? You're walking down a trail, and somebody is in front, leading, and you are following them you are driving down the highway and you're driving with someone in another car we do this all the time and somebody is following somebody now those are easy examples because the trail is there and we know where we're going there's not a lot of discussion about which way the road goes But what if there wasn't a road? What if there wasn't a trail? What if you didn't know where you were going? Would you still be willing to follow the person in front of you? I've always been amazed at Abraham. Abraham was told to go to a land that I will show you. No map, no destination, no endpoint, no type it into Google Maps and tell where you're going and you know how many hours it takes to get there. Go and I'll tell you when you get there. And Abraham went. He did not know where he was going, he did not know what was going to happen, but he knew about God, and God had told him to go, and Abraham followed. Question. We all, I would think, sitting in this room of this good Christian church, would say that we want to follow Jesus. I do. But do we have to know where we're going Do we have to know where we're going to stop for lunch? Do we have to know how long it's going to take to get there? Do we have to know what's going to happen on the way? Do we have to know how people are going to respond when we do it? Do we have to know, have to know, have to know? And until we know all that, I'm going to sit in this nice room of nice Christian people and talk about following Jesus. Hmm. I better quit now. Following Jesus is the step of faith. Following Jesus means, at a minimum, studying the scripture, studying the life of Christ, studying what a life of faith looks like, and then moving. I, speaking for myself, will sit at my kitchen table and study this stuff all day long. But at some point, you have to do, you have to follow where Jesus says, go. And you say, well, that's easy to say. I'll sit at my kitchen table. No, I'll sit in my easy chair watching TV. And when Jesus wants to knock at the door and tell me where to go, I'll go. Well, he's told us things to do but yeah, I'd rather have a knock at the door. Jesus standing there saying, come on, I'll show you where to go. Abraham didn't have that. He had God telling him what to do. We have God telling us what to do. Do we follow after Christ? (sighs) Three things. Deny the self, take up your cross and follow after me. As I said, I've been pondering these three statements. They're actually not that complicated. Putting them into action is very complicated. And the reason it's very complicated is that it is exceptionally contrary to the world in which we live. In fact, I would argue it's totally the wrong direction. The world exists to tell you that it's all about you. It's all about you. What is good for you is what you ought to do. What maximizes your pleasure or comfort or whatever, that's what you're supposed to do. It's all about you. And we are told to set all of that aside and follow after Jesus. That's hard. That's hard and very counter to the culture in which we live. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. This is the paradox of the Christian life. If I... If I strive, work to save my own life, I will, according to the gospel, lose it. If I think that I can protect myself from the the world, from y'all, from people, events, if I think that I can lock myself away and save myself The scripture says, I will lose it. Now, where do we start in the scripture? Let's start with Stephen. Stephen was a deacon of the early church. And one day a mob grabbed him. He gave a speech, great speech. They carted him off and they stoned him to death. Now, looking at cruel and unusual ways of dying, that's on the list too, okay? Stoning is exactly what it sounds like. People pick up big rocks and throw them at you until you don't move anymore, okay? Now, Stephen died, okay? We understand that, right? Not metaphorically, he died, Literally. Did Stephen lose? No. And that is what we, by faith, need to understand. Because if my one goal in life is to make sure that no one ever stones me, physically, metaphorically, Whatever way, emotionally, if my one goal in life is to never be stoned, I am going to deny Jesus. Wait a minute. I'm never going to stand up in public and say, no, no, Jesus doesn't. I'm I'm not going to do that. You're right. You're just not going to do what Jesus would have you to do. The paradox of the Christian life is when we look at what God would have us to do, when we look at what following Jesus means, we begin to think, I can't do number four on that list. I can't do it. Or my neighbor is going to think I'm crazy. Okay. Your neighbor may think you're crazy. Or... Your neighbor may think you're different, and that difference is important. Do we know how that's going to respond? No. Every one of these disciples is going to die for their faith. Every one of these disciples, we'll exclude Judas. Every one of these disciples is going to die for their faith. Every one of these disciples is in heaven right now. They won. They lost so they could win. And if you want to win and you want to win at all costs, you will lose. How do we accept that? By faith, we know that it is impossible to exist without believing that God exists and that he rewards those who seek after him. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels, that's an interesting phrase, will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it gain you if you get everything? And then you lose your soul. There's a great story in this, right? Faust and all of that. There was a, I think it was a Catholic uh, speaker at the beginning of the last century who would start his presentations to groups of men by saying, many of you would rather your sons go to Harvard than go to heaven. And that's one of those big, bold statements that speakers use to start a talk, because it grabs people's attention, and you know it starts, a, starts you thinking. I mean, I hear that, or I read it, and I sit there and go, that's kind of stupid, really. What human being would rather their child go to Harvard than go to heaven? That just doesn't make sense. Well, in reality, we accept the fact that I, as a human being, can work toward getting my child to go to Harvard. None of my children went to Harvard, by the way, just sober. One of my daughters did graduate from Johns Hopkins Nursing School, so that's pretty good. We know that I can work toward obtaining the success that is measured by going to Harvard. So I spend my effort going in this path because I know how to do it. The world tells us how to do it. The world tells us how to succeed in the world. And we get to the point where we assume, I'm going to spend my energy going down this path, and I'll let God worry about the rest. And inadvertently, by neglect, we end up sending our sons to Harvard and not to heaven. It isn't an intentional decision, It isn't I sit down and go, I'm going to make a decision that this is so important. Now, I might add, there are people who make that decision. I read a survey years ago. I just thought this was fascinating. You're an Olympic-class athlete, and somebody comes to you and says, psst, I can give you a drug, never be detected, ever, that will allow you to win every event you're in, and in five years, you're going to drop dead." And half the Olympic athletes said, sure. Why? We are obsessed with the things of this world. We, as 21st century Americans, Do not spend a lot of time thinking about the quality of our soul. The condition of our soul. The future of our soul. Why? Well, we've said this before at length in this class. We live in a very materialistic age. If I can't touch it, it doesn't exist. Okay? What is the soul? Well, that's just kind of this fuzzy thing that, you know, no. The soul is the center of who you are. The soul is the part of you that will reside for eternity. Now, just to make sure we don't fall off the cliff somewhere, we sometimes talk about the soul and we talk about the body as if somehow, well, God made you a combined being. So while it is useful to talk about breaking these apart, we need to remember that we are a unified being. Your body, in its glorified state, is going to live forever in its glorified state. But the soul is who you are. The soul is what is going to determine your eternal destiny. What good is it? If you do become the CEO of the biggest company in the world, what good does it do you if you do win that Olympic event? What good does it do you if you do get that? Fill in the blank with your favorite thing. If in the process of pursuing that, you neglect your soul, what good is it? we are very focused on the things of this world it's getting worse right for what can a man give in return for his soul how many dollars how much time how much it is priceless it is beyond value Now, just in case you want to get involved in another discussion, C.S. Lewis has an interesting quote where he talks about you seeing somebody on the street and you kind of just brush them off. You know, they're not important to you. They can't do anything for you. They're not interesting to you. And you just kind of brush them off. And he said, do you realize that that person that you just dismissed is a soul that is made in the image of God that is going to live for eternity? He said, if you saw what they really were, you would think it was the most magical creature ever made on this planet, So while we're thinking about the condition of our souls and the infinite value of them, remember, every person you come in contact with today is made in the image of God and is of infinite worth. Kind of makes it hard to dismiss them, right? Mm. For whoever is ashamed of me And of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when it comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's take this from the back and work our way to the front of it. There is going to come an event where Jesus returns. Okay? At the end of this book, the book of Mark, Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem in a triumphant fashion, and then they're going to kill him. He's going to be resurrected. He is going to go on to heaven. You know the the way the story ends. But the entire time that Jesus is on this earth, Jesus is, by the socio-political standards of the time a nobody. He just really is. I mean, he's got 12 followers and they're not the brightest bulbs in the box. I mean, he's got a group of people that hang around him until things get bad, then a lot of them leave. This is Jesus on the earth accomplishing what God would have him to do by dying to pay the penalty for our sins. There is going to come a time when he returns. And that's going to be different. There's not going to be any manger. There's not going to be any shepherds. There's not going to be any Herod hears word that there might be something going on somewhere. Maybe I ought to investigate. I'm not even sure there's going to be enough time for it to get on CNN. CNN. The world is going to know that he is returning at that point in time. We can have long discussions, but you know, there's three things I'm not going to teach about. Marriage, parenting, and the book of Revelation. So we're not going to talk about that. But it is an event that is going to happen, to happen. And Jesus is going to see you. Now, I know, some of us will already be dead, we'll have been seen, I mean, okay. But at some point, Jesus is going to see you. And here is the observation of this verse. If you are embarrassed and ashamed of Jesus now, What is his response going to be when he sees you then? It isn't going to be good. It is an interesting statement for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. So, what is the this adulterous and sinful generation? Is it the time in which Jesus is living? Yes. Is it the generation after that? Probably yes. Is it the generation after that? Probably yes. Is it the generation in which we're living today? Probably yes. Adulterous, adulterous and sinful generation. It is interesting because you see the word adultery and you think of sex out, you know, with somebody other than your marriage partner. You think of some sexual sin and you go, why is that the one? Well, you remember the Old Testament prophets referred to Israel as committing adultery because they were running after other gods. Idolatry is adultery. Idolatry is leaving your spouse and going after something else. The bridegroom is returning. Jesus is the bridegroom. We, the church, are the bride. And we've been fooling around with other guys. We are an adulterous and sinful generation. Now, why does he say this? Well, it would be easy for you to stand up in this class and say, I believe in Jesus. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe every word of the Bible. Why? Because we're all nice people. We're probably all going to agree with you. But you walk outside into the... (gasps) real world, and I'll add, it's in here too, but we'll pretend, you walk out there into the real world, and you kind of get embarrassed about the things of God, you know? You learn something in class that you're supposed to deny yourself, and take up your cross, and follow after Jesus, and you know what? Your neighbor's going to think you're crazy, your coworker, your friend, your bridge partner, that person you run into at the grocery store, they're all going to think. So you don't say anything. You just hide it. There's a picture somewhere in the Sermon on the Mount about taking the light that God has given you and putting a bushel on top of it. Something about that. Why? Because in the middle Of this adulterous and sinful generation, we begin to believe sometimes it's just best to keep our head down. Nobody will see us, and they won't know. They won't know what we really believe. I believe in being kind and gentle because I believe Jesus, and the scripture tells us Jesus was gentle. I don't believe in walking up and whacking people in the head with a two-by-four to try to convert them. Number one, it doesn't work. Number two, it just irritates them. And number three, it gets you written up in the paper. I don't believe this is telling us to go out and be obnoxious. It's telling us to go out and be faithful. So, let's look at the whole progression here. Jesus gets his disciples together in this huddle over here. And he says, who do people think say that I am? Peter, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Good answer. Still with his disciples. But you know, right, that I'm going to go get beaten. I'm going to get rejected by all the leaders. All that's going to happen. No, 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 Jesus. That's not going to happen. Get away from me, Satan. And then he turns to the crowd, because that's what it says, and he tells them, this is what it means to follow after me. And what are the people thinking? Why are they there? Well, I know why they're there. He fed them. Okay. You feed me, I'll come to your house. He cured their diseases. He cast out the demons. He did, I mean... This is cool stuff. And did I mention that he fed them? I'll follow somebody who feeds me. But now he's telling the crowd. He told the disciples, they're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. They're going to reject me. And as I said last week, he ends that with, and I'm going to rise from the dead in three days. But I don't think they understand that. I mean, that's outside of normal discussion. We're transitioning in the book. We're transitioning between the crowd who wants to get fed and the disciples who are going to follow Jesus. So the question we ask is, do we come to church, this church, because it's got great music. It does have great music. It has great preachers. They are good. We're all nice people, we all dress up well, and we come here. And sometimes they do feed us, okay? But then when he turns and he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, (sighs) do we go looking for a different church that has better food? I don't know. That's the question. That is the separation. This is the middle of the book. And I don't know about you. Forget about you. I wrestle with what it means to deny the self, take up my cross, and follow after Jesus. Not in some theoretical thing, but when Jesus says, there's a person over there that needs your help. But you know what? I don't want them to know what I, I, you know. Remember, Jesus told them, they're going to reject me and they're going to beat me. Who wants to be rejected and who wants to be beaten? Nobody does. But you know what? After the disciples see the risen Lord, after they see the risen Lord, They're going to be jailed, they're going to be beaten, and they're going to be killed, and they are going to rejoice that God allowed them to participate in the sufferings of Christ. And you know what? They gave their life so that they could win. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would show each of us how, how, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and follow after you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.